Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Catherine Ingram. The following is from a Zoom session broadcast from Australia on August 8th, 2021. It's called, Let This Moment Be Your Treasure. I invite you to join us for any of the upcoming monthly Zoom sessions, held at two different times on the first weekend of each month, to accommodate most time zones in the world. I, a few years ago, planted a jasmine hedge along one side of my property, and it has uh, grown into a magnificent thing. And at the moment, it's blooming with thousands of, of jasmine flowers, and it blooms for quite a while. And I usually have a few sprigs next to my bed through the night. And I find um, the scent of jasmine very enchanting. As we know, our sense of smell is very, very connected to memory. It's probably uh, one of the great evolutionary advantages that we've needed over the the long walk of our time. So, you know, it, there's inevitably an experience when one has a strong smell that's associated with other places you've been that you find yourself thinking about those places, remembering them. So in this case, for instance, I can be smelling the jasmine around here and suddenly I'm having a flood of memories about being in India or the night-blooming jasmine in Los Angeles when I would go for walks at night or Hawaii, a lot of jasmine around in Hawaii as well and many places. It's a simple pleasure. It sort of connects me to the journey of my life, not that I think when I have those those memories, not that I think a whole lot about what was happening, what was I doing. It was more you just sort of momentarily land in the place. You stick the landing <laughs> into a certain moment, a certain spot in time. And I'm aware as I'm living the current moments and smelling the current fragrance of the jasmine, of how these these moments too become stored in memory somehow, however imperfectly, but nevertheless, they're getting recorded in a strong way because of the the very pleasant smell all through the night, as, as a matter of fact. I say this by way of saying that our daily experience now is your treasure. These are your moments of these days. These are your treasures. We're often waiting for something else to happen, for the world to get back to normal, as if. (laughs) I think we left normal sometime back, whatever that was, whoever got to say that was normal, but nevertheless, whatever we thought was the usual norm of life, I think we'd better adjust to a great unknowing, a great mystery, and count these days as your real treasures and not ask for some other kind of version of reality to go back to a certain time that you felt was better. 
Let this be your treasure. Let this day, let this smell of the jasmine or of the spring blossoms where, or the summer blossoms rather, wherever you are, let those be your new treasures. Let those be your newfound memories. It will only hurt to lament ways of life that are now not on offer. And it will gladden your heart to celebrate what is on offer in the now. And there's plenty. There's plenty. Even that we can have a conversation like this with friends from around the world. That's a really amazing thing, an amazing privilege, something that most people of history couldn't dream of, literally couldn't have dreamed of. Maybe Jules Verne could have dreamed of it, but most people couldn't have dreamed of it. <laughs> There's a tendency we all have, it's very conditioned to take things for granted. And this is another habit that can be challenged. You don't have to do it every minute of the day, having to constantly remind yourself, don't take this for granted. That would be oppressive. But to have a light intention, a light intention that's just moving through and being grateful here and there through the day, cutting down on the whining. <laughs> Sometimes I say to myself, literally, stop whining. So I'm particularly happy in this phase that I'm in because the jasmine are blooming away. And then I also planted loads and loads of gardenias. They start blooming about a month after the jasmine is finished. So these are my little small joys and there are many more in my life, but I really let myself have these ones. It's, it's something that I, I allow my attention to focus on. I'll walk outside and stand on the deck and just smell, just breathe. My niece, who's on this call, told me yesterday that, you know, in the midst of all the uncertainty about life in all our countries, she happens to be in the USA. She was sitting on her, on her deck, I think she said, and a, a little hummingbird was just hovering all around her, very close to her face. And she was just in this pure presence with the hummingbird. Just in this, these minutes of hanging out with it just all around her, flittering and fluttering all around her. These are your treasures. There's a lot of things that are off the table now. Really difficult to make plans. There might be many people you don't get to see again. Like most people in history, if somebody lived far away, you didn't get to see them again. Here in Australia, you know, somebody, it's a young person might steal a loaf of bread in London, get put on a ship, end up in Australia, in a prison colony here, in Tasmania or somewhere, and never have any contact again with anyone they knew from back home. We have tremendous privilege still. We have some things that are limited now. 
but we do still live in extraordinary abundance. And it may not be as much as we're used to. It's still plenty. Let's use our attention intelligently, wisely, dharmically, gratefully, lovingly. Let's use our attention to feel a sense of well-being that transmits to other people. So you sparked a little memory for me. I uh, usually take a walk in the evening. I live in Colorado. It's not quite as exotic. We don't have jasmine flowers here. But there's this... Lots of other great stuff, though. (laughs) uh, You would not believe it here now. It is like fog coast, and it's smoke from the Oregon fire. Wow. It's been that way for weeks. It's apocalyptic here. Yeah. And it was last summer. But here's my my little treasure. There's this little spot on the walk, and it's in a little kind of covert area where when I walk by there on a summer evening, it smells like a summer evening. I smell the earth. It's a little cooler down there. And I walk by that spot, and I notice it when it's there. And sometimes I walk back through it again to smell it. Because it just sparks a memory. I grew up in Ohio in the heartland where it's a lot more fertile and trees and it's earthier. Yeah. Colorado, not so much. It's pretty arid and dry. Yeah. That little, that little, you know, treasure, that little moment, I, I savor that one. Very (laughs) good. Yeah. Yes. It sparks all those, you know, memories of, of the past, but it's, it's also something that's happening right there in the moment. Yes. And if I was not paying attention, listening to something or in my head, worried, but I'm not, Mm. I pick that up every time and I savor it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. So wise. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's my little share. Yeah. No, that's the recommendation is all these little treasures, all these jewels and even if you have to find it in the midst of something that's quite hard, like breathing smoke. Yeah, the air quality is very poor here right now. And it's been that way for, like I said, a week, maybe longer. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I mean, this whole climate change thing that was kind of theoretical and uh, happening somewhere else. It, it's not theoretical anymore. No, no. <laughs> it's a real thing. Absolutely. In a lot of places. Yeah, and the American West is one of them right now. Oh, goodness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Catherine, some of your very um, comforting thoughts about being able to draw on a kind of a, a well of, of experience and, and memories is obviously a very important thing for us to try to put into practice in these times of everything being sort of, well, lots of things, not everything, not everything by a long shot, and that's your point, but lots of things being curtailed and circumscribed or just being simply off off the menu. But one of the things, and that, that is something that I, I feel like I'm starting to be able to put into practice, mm-hmm. 
Um, because indeed I've lived a, a, a charmed life I'm through more good luck than good management. So I do have a well to draw on. But one of the things that is really troubling me is, is what sort of, and we've discussed this a little bit ourselves, Catherine, but my son, and he's 11, and he doesn't have that emotional buttressing of, of a life well lived and lots of satisfactions or challenges overcome or regrets put aside and all of those things that most of us here on the call are, are of, a, of a certain age where we've got a great sort of a stock of, of things to support ourselves with, uh, a life well lived, a, 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 a sense of satisfaction. I mean, if, if things really do just take a dreadful downward spiral, I could console myself that I've had a, a life well lived. And, and your, your point about any, any child, you know, the question, that fundamental question, would you have rather not been born at all and had, had 11 great years, you know, of, of love and, and a fun, you know, family life? But for him going forward, I just, you know, he's, he's busy building new memories and he doesn't, he, I mean, he has to a certain degree a, a well of, of, of memories and experiences to draw on, but that's not of great interest to him. You know, he's busy looking outward. Yeah. I've, I've been quite, quite comfortable looking inward these past 18 months. Um, well, comfortable might not be the word, but I'm, you know, happy to do it. Yeah. Um, I'm at, a, at an age where that comes more naturally. Yeah. But that, that's something that I'm that I, I sort of am seeking your advice and anyone else on the call, please, anyone else who's had experience with, with, with children and helping them, well, probably not being too explicit about it, but somehow giving them the, the tools to, you know, you tell a, tell a child to curtail their, their expectations. I mean, I'm sure many people have to do it. <laughs> Refugee camps, mm-hmm. people fleeing, who knows, lots of parents have to have these very difficult conversations and I guess I'm just that's something that I'm really struggling with first of all when I was talking about memories I was more talking about the spontaneous associative memories that arise with certain smells and certain circumstances I wasn't necessarily suggesting to go fishing for them in the past I would say to you about your son that he is he doesn't have to be conceptually prepared in any way. He's being prepared by the strength of love that he's experiencing as a child. That's the best possible preparation for providing a kind of psychological stability for whatever comes. You don't need to be talking to him about, at least at this point, about resetting his inspirations or goals or whatever. He's in a kind of developmental process, which you can just let roll on. And these children are going to, as I've said to you and many other people, they're going to get whatever amount of life they get. There's nothing much. I mean, we can protect them as best we can. But as we all know, we don't control the universe. We don't control much at all. So the main, the main buttress against 
sort of horrible psychological collapse is feeling a, a sense of connection, feeling a safety within one's family, feeling loved. Mm. And I mean, he, he having, only my, having only met him once, but I can see in a glance, he's a joyous child. He's been well loved. There's nothing more strong than that. I think sometimes we make the mistake, and certainly it can work that people who've been through hell and back can develop a certain strength. But sometimes we make the mistake that people who haven't been tested that way or haven't gone through a whole lot of trauma, that, that they might be more soft or they might fall apart more. As it turns out, people who've had a lot of abuse and anxiety in childhood it actually causes a very quick response to anxiety in later life. It basically increases your tendencies to anxiety throughout life. It's, not, it's like a double punishment. You get punished as in the childhood, and then you're basically more, you're sort of damaged in terms of anxiety uh, going forward. That's, that's very well known and, and measured. Whereas I think kids who've just been so well-loved can often roll through hard times better than one would think. Just because you haven't seen them have to go through that um, doesn't mean that they don't have what it takes to, to do it. And in the meantime, happy childhood. That's all your, your whole job is his dad. Happy childhood. You don't have to be scaring him with anything or getting him ready or It'll happen gradually that information, the kids are so hip these days and they're all connected to each other and they're all talking and they're, they're a great strong peer group for themselves. They're processing things in their own ways. So it's not only on your shoulders in terms of how much information, how little, but you can be just the solid rock, the, the big shade tree, the loving arms, the guy who uh, fixes stuff around the house, <laughs> gets the food. Listens patiently. <laughs> yes. And um, that's, that's an incredible, I, I, I so hear you as a parent, like the, it would be just almost a constant koan, I think, for many parents of like, what do I say? What do I do? How do I prepare him? I just don't know if it, there would be any good that would come, especially to someone as young as 11, maybe later in the teen years. And I have friends who are talking to their teens, very honestly, but that's later, 17, 18, 19 and there. But you asked for another view. And my niece, who's got an 11-year-old daughter, she's got two kids, one's 11, your son's age. I, I know there's lots of other um, parents on the call. I was thinking about the 11, you said the 11-year-old's I think that the kids do a remarkable job of staying in the moment. And so I do think that's something that, especially my younger eight-year-old, just really living, enjoying moments and living the moment. So I think that's something that I, I feel like I'm relearning. I'm getting every day from them. Definitely appreciating the small things, the things that, finding joy in things that adults overlook. And so there's a lot of that. But the 11-year-old, my, in my case, um, you know, is uh, she is very mature and she is kind of 
there, like seeing, seeing the way of the world. And so I, I do, I do admit to struggle a little bit with that and just, um, the protective side comes out, you know, the protective. Um, so I think, I think what, what you say though, Catherine is really what I think about every day. We talk about this is just providing the comfort and love and the open arms. And that that is really giving, it's making her well-equipped to go yeah. to go forth and handle everything. That's that that's great advice to to flip it. Exactly. Yeah. Um yeah. that's a real little nugget of gold. That's yeah. <laughs> he can he can show me how to navigate some of this by taking those small pleasures, which is innate and natural for children. This is what Catherine keeps trying to <laughs> all of us crusty old grown-ups would you know get tangled up in bigger things when um the, the kids just naturally find delight in, 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 in little things. Yeah. Yeah. And another memory that's coming to mind is, you know, as, as I began to become more and more alarmed at what was going on on the planetary level, this goes back quite some years, but probably, Oh, at least 18 years ago, I said to, I said to Leonard, God, how do we, how do we speak about any of this? How do, how, how do we warn anybody? How can we possibly have conversations? It'll just scare the bejesus out of everyone. And Leonard said, there are things we don't tell the children. And um, of course, he meant it not just the little kids, but in this case, it applies. But also, lots of people are not ready to hear the really bad news. And there's no point. Why should we scare them? Why should we tell them? Unless it's a, a warning that will get them out of an immediate emergency. But if it's something that there's not a lot to be done about, then, you know, there are things we don't tell the children. And that's just, that's how it has always been with adults. They, there's no need. So I would just say, have fun with him and let him, let his joy infect you. <laughs> instead of your concern of infect him <laughs> you're the parent you know you've got more information you're watching the the trends of the world you can't help but know certain things that he just doesn't need to know right now mm. thank you both yes you're welcome I think the big takeaway for me today so far is stop whining. Found <laughs> <laughs> dharmic wisdom there. I think it may be my new mantra. <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, I'm saying this tongue in cheek, but you know those those whining moments. I know enough to know that they don't benefit me it's not like this authentic expression that needs to emerge around something like grief or or um anger sometimes these are things that i need to feel and if i try to damn them then the process doesn't it doesn't resolve itself yeah yeah like the whining it just you know it's like it's like a mosquito that can just keep buzzing in your ear that's (laughs) a great great image yeah I moved yeah. into this new house. Um, I feel really lucky, really lucky and privileged to be able to own a home, especially in Portland, where the market is is really tough right now. And everything about this place fell into fell into place so easily. 
Like it was my first day looking. It was the second place I looked at the first and only bid I submitted. And I got a feeling, I got a feeling in my heart and I got a feeling in my gut when I walked in of just like, it's magical. It's, it's meant for me. And, you know, didn't know if I would actually get it, but I did. And it all happened really quickly. And then uh, I had about a month prior to moving in to like come by and really feel the place out, feel the sounds, feel the garden, feel the light. And turned out the sounds are really loud. It's on actually like a major intersection that's very well covered by a hedge, but you're close to a very busy road. And I didn't, I didn't think about this the first time I came by. I was just so in, kind of enraptured with the hummingbirds and the roses and the sage and the violet and the Western red cedar, so many smells and so much beauty to feast the eyes on. But so the sound kind of fell into the background and then I started coming back and it was way in the foreground. And the first few days I lived here, which I've only been in since Monday, I was just fixated on the rising and falling of these engines as they come to a stop sign right out front and then accelerate Mm -hmm. again. And the first night I tried to sleep, didn't happen. And, you know, I just, I'm up at night thinking, oh my God, I just bought a house that I'm not going to be able to sleep in or find peace in. And you know, as I'm getting used to it and finding anew the capacity to rest my attention on other things that bring me joy, I'm finding that there's a kind of a letting go. Like I'm wanting on the one hand to just have some like neurofeedback machine reprogram my mind so I don't have aversion to loud sounds. And on the other hand, I'm finding this ah so this is as it is right now. And I have so many little gems to feast my other senses on. Yes. Yeah. And the capacity to practice. I mean, I feel like I'm kind of in like a, I'm <laughs> getting a little re-disciplining of my, of my attention because as soon as I could complaining about it, then it's just loud sounds and complaining inner loud sounds, which yes. is a coffee, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, it's just an amplification of noise <laughs> in and out. <laughs> and then, you know, barking dogs will go off somewhere else. And, you know, you can just right. get stuck on that aversion loop. But finding within that the capacity to actually let it pass, rise and fall and pass, it's yes. powerful. It's, it's a kind of retraining that I think ultimately will be of benefit. Absolutely. Yeah, I've had many times in life, different circumstances, whether it was, you know, renting a house in Hawaii and discovering that there are all these roosters nearby that are crowing at, you know, literally the right before dawn and the break of dawn, and I'm not an early morning riser. And, um, you know, and thinking, oh, my God, I'm, you know, I'm going to be woken up every day at dawn. But After a few days, I didn't even hear them anymore. Or if I did hear them, they were just somehow in the dreams and it didn't wake me up. Or in New York City, where you visited me in that apartment on the Upper East Side. You know, I I mean, I moved there from a quiet situation and, and then suddenly it's sirens at night and traffic and horns honking. And but again, I just got used to sleeping. It just was a different background noise. So maybe just 
open your, as you're describing, open your mind to an adjustment because of course, if you're being in resistance to it and thinking, what have I done? I bought a house and, and, uh, and the constant noise. And, you know, if that, if that story, if that whining, if those mosquitoes are buzzing, it just intensifies the resistance. But if you basically just think of it as background noise in the new place, or do other things like you can get, you know, there's a zillion podcasts that are sleep music, you know, like sounds of birds and sounds of night birds and things like that. You could perhaps have some of that going, soundproof the room a bit more, things like that. You can do some things to just even just lower the decibel level, but ultimately it'll be an adjustment. It's an inside job. Yeah, you know all the, you know all this. <laughs> One more thought I'm having too, and it's another lesson I've learned over the years, which, you know, maybe you wouldn't have been able to get such a nice house if it wasn't a very quiet place, because maybe it would have been a lot more expensive and a lot more people after it, you know? So in perhaps some way, there was an advantage. That's sort of, you could frame it that way. Yeah. Yeah. One more thing, Catherine. I, I liked what you said at the end of your intro about just like the, not, you didn't say the word necessity, but just like there have been times in the past when you've described just such open ended attention, like such non doing, such open, like open perspective, open mind. And I heard you saying today a little bit like maybe a little bit more energy around like really guiding attention right now during these times when there are a lot of things we can't have and pleasures that we can indulge that like really requires our discipline to to, to, uh, change the channel from the whiny mosquito of our own dissatisfaction to a more active appreciation of the joys. You got that one exactly right. I, I find in my own case... I am having to use stronger attention and uh, stronger intentionality than has been the case for decades, actually. Things feel closer in, in terms of the pressing in, Mm -hmm. and there's a wobble through the world of anxiety. And as you know, I pay a lot of attention to the news and to really like the under threads of the news. And I'm very, very aware of tremendous shortages that are going on in the world supply chain disruptions, things that are going to have knock-on effects for probably all of us, and and at the same time, climate collapse, which is all part of it. These are all intersecting crises that are happening at once. And there are psychological costs of having to make these adjustments. So I'm making those too. I, I can't, I literally am not allowed to leave this country. We've been trapped here (laughs) in that we can't leave for a year and a half. So that means I can't just go see my family, my 90-year-old mother who's depressed in Florida or anyone, you know, I can't go see, hang out with my niece and the kids and my other great nieces and nephews and so on. So there's loss. And and that is what that's one of the times when the stop whining comes up is these stories about, well, never and probably won't be able to and da, 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 and how's that going to work? And it's I know the painful road where that leads. So 
I am having to apply more vigilance and more intentionality more frequently. That's just how it is, as humans have had to do in hard times. I spoke last night on this on the Zoom session. It's it's kind of like wartime. I mean, obviously people aren't shooting at us, but and we don't have soldiers, you know, on the front lines. Most of us in our countries don't yet. It, it's there's something similar to wartime. There's something similar in terms of uncertainty, in terms of not how this is how's all this going to go, in terms of potential cutbacks of all kinds of things we rely on. Those those thoughts can't help but float up in awareness as potentials, as possibilities. Mm-hmm. And so I I am applying more direct the attention, just move the attention, not into fantasy, into now. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. I said last night, it was a phrase that came to me in the quiet part before I began speaking, and I'm not sure I can remember it exactly, but it was something like, the future as a concept, which is all that it is, the future as an idea, as a concept, is always unresolved. Mm. It's always unresolved. So it has a little tension built in. Because even if, even if let's say, your future is about dread, well, that has certainly tension built in. But even if it's something something good, You're not sure it can happen. You're not sure it's going to happen. You might get thrown off course. So you just never know. It's always as an idea, which it's all that it is, is unresolved. Whereas the present as a lived experience is always in full resolution. Mm. Always resolved here and now. It's just what it is. That's it. I have for years had a cartoon on my refrigerator and it was a Zen master sitting with his student. And apparently the student has just asked a question and the, and the caption, the Zen master is saying, nothing happens next. This is it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of like when you're just sort of resting in, okay, this is it. This is my present moment. This is the most alive one we have. All the rest are past and future. All the the future ones are all just completely unresolved. (laughs) That's just a whole big can of worms of who knows. But this one, the, the aliveness of this one is where we can rest. It's resolved. Just a couple of things. This morning I was out walking early. I'm in St Kilda, Melbourne, Australia, and I was looking at the, um, I live overlooking what's called a memorial park. So it's a park where there are a couple of statues acknowledging war. And I was picking up on what what Catherine talked about last night. Um, Probably for me anyway, this is about the nearest I, I would imagine reading about how people were in the war. Anyway, I was thinking about the names of the people on the statue acknowledging their their deaths. And this was the Boer War, so it's not like the most mainstream war that Australians would think about. We would talk about 
you know, we refer to the Great War or the Vietnam War. But anyway, just it was just acknowledging the 19-year-olds who would, who I was wondering what they would have been like with having given up their lives. And um, and somebody came up behind me and I said, look at that name. And they said, oh, that's actually, ironically, a, a relative of theirs. And they said the interesting thing was it says they were 19, but they were really 16 and they were desperate for an adventure to go and I don't know how they did it, but you're able to convince or lie or whatever. And I was just thinking about, wow, like many people I know, many 16-year-olds, but it just spun me into a whole thing about, well, it triggered the thing about what the hell am I whining about? Because I give myself some time every day to whine. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to tell you that I'm not, I haven't been able to minimise it to the point where it doesn't exist. I just think, okay, I'm going to have so many whatever's of whining minutes or whatever. And then I go, no, we've done whining. We're breathing and moving on. So <laughs> that was just a nice trigger to fall into that. And the other little thing to share is I lived for a while on an extremely busy road in Melbourne and literally the noise never stopped. It's a, it's a very unregulated road. It's called Punt Road. And I'm sure that's Latin for constant noise or something. But the noise just never stopped. The cars just never stopped. And it honestly, it was such a conflict for me. I thought, what am I doing? A whole lot of circumstances meant that I had to move there and stay there for probably a year it was I'd committed. Anyway, the funny thing about it was it didn't dissipate in a number of days. It took a number of weeks and even months. But then I found myself in the country in complete silence. And, you know, the irony of that was I could not sleep. <laughs> I would wake half the night sitting up thinking, oh, my God, there's no noise. And I, and I now live between two places, so I have to adapt pretty quickly. And now how I think I've adapted is, yeah, listening resistance. Mm. This is where I am. But I've even tried to turn the noise into being a comfort. And um, that's probably my only strategy that's continued to work during these times, meaning in and out of lockdown and seeing everything that's facing me that normally I would think as a challenge, I try to flip it to say, yeah, you know, that thing about what are the good things. And the only other rounded up thing I want to say is the, the beautifulness of the discussion about 11-year-olds. We've got, I, I met an 11-year-old that's in, in, my, in our care with work the other day. And I said, what are you looking forward to? And she said, I tell you, the thing I'm looking forward to is I'm going to go to a shop and I'm going to buy $5 worth of lolly snakes. Uh-huh. And I just, it, it made me smile all day. Oh. That was it. It was just <laughs> so beautiful. Oh. <laughs> so, anyway, enough for me, but thank you for listening. It was great. Hi, Catherine. Hi, dear. It's my first time here, so... Thank you for this. Yeah, it's making me realize um, I'm in the U.S. and it's making me realize how different different countries are with the lockdowns. And we have family in Australia and South Africa and all over the world. And just hearing everybody kind of in the stages they are of COVID and lockdown and 
I just moved from New York to Virginia and even between states, it's so different, vastly different. So I just want to name that. The, the thing that I wanted to just say is that I've been on a long journey of my mom passing away and what you shared about the smells and how that brings up so many sensations and thoughts. It also reminded me of expectations and in this time that she's going through this dying process, I've had so many expectations of how the end would be, how the end will come, how we'll have this kumbaya, and we'll sort out all our issues from our whole life together, and we'll find peace and wholeness, and she'll essentially open up in a way that she never has. And that's not my mother. That's not my mother at all. She's a very kind of closed and private person. And I think you're just reminding me how I've gone through this simultaneous grieving process as well of not only losing my mom, but also losing the hope of having this nice kind of what I would want, right? This kind of, I'm a, I'm a therapist, so I always want to talk about my feelings and <laughs> process and share and have a good cry together. But, you know, that's just not not what she's wanted. And I think as I'm going through this with her, what I've learned that reminded me of your flower example is how the simple things can just bring me into the present with her. And yeah. she can't really speak right now. And just, you know, the other day I went over there and just held her hand and just laid with her and listened to the rain or, you know, I brought in some flowers or I put some essential oil in a diffuser and, or I rubbed her feet or, you know, things like that, that I think are, can, can be so much more than words and tears mm -hmm. and sharing. Oh yeah, beautiful. One of my, I've told this story many times, but one of my very close friends in Hawaii, she did a training, a hospice training, and her teacher said this one thing that she applied in her work, and actually she applies in general. He said, your job is to be a non-anxious presence. Mm. That's all you need to be. When you're sitting with someone who's dying, you don't have to have the big understanding and the big talk and the big meeting of souls and hearts and minds. People tend to die as they've lived, I hear. You know, I'm sure there are great examples that are that people have breakthroughs, which would be the time to do it. <laughs> but a lot of people don't. And your breakthrough can be that you were able to be a non-anxious presence at her bedside, that you didn't want more than that. And, and when you think about being on the other end of, you know, if you're busy dying, you wouldn't want to have someone in the room who wanted something from you. Exactly. Than, but having someone in the room who's just chilling and, and is giving you their good company in a kind of quiet, simple way, that would be very welcome, I would think. I always loved the simplicity of that. And I also apply it just in general. Like if I'm, you know, if I'm just with people or if I'm in some circumstance where I maybe don't feel so connected or whatever, I just figure well, all I have to be is a non-anxious presence. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you're welcome. Hi, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what's, what's coming to me is the relief that the rest of the world is acknowledging the fact that we have no control in our lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, um, 
I feel like I've been wanting to accept that as reality. However, it's hard to have anyone else on board with that. The messages around us are always about how you need to make a plan and have goals and achieve them and um, be somewhere else and be someone else. And um, I had the pleasure and again, relief of being able to surf in North Carolina. I'm in um, New York City, uh, but we went down because we didn't have any kids with us and we're remote. So I learned to surf. Oh, cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was the most terrifying and brutal and uh, exhilarating experience of really having no control. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and loving it. Yes. <laughs> you know, just like not, yeah, not knowing what's going to be next and, and trying so hard on the first day to break through and then realize that that's, you can't do that. You can't mm. fight the waves. <laughs> you can't, you just have to accept the big one and fall over and just, just keep being terrified and I had the pleasure of a wonderful group of people of instructors that were so attentive and supportive and rescuing me and encouraging me and you know come back I'll see you tomorrow I'll see you tomorrow you know and it it wasn't until the the very last wave of the very last day and Mitchell my instructor said to me this is the last one you got to commit. You got to commit to the wave. And I said, well, what am I going to do when I get up? You know, what, what do I do with my hands? I said, and he said, well, you can wave at the people on the shore and you can wave at the wave. And moments later, I, I was on the board. I was popping up, you know, paddle, 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 pop up, pop up. And then I popped up and I stood up. And I waved at the shore and I waved at the wave. And I was just like, it was just this incredible union, you know, of this like resistance for so long. And then finally surrender and wow, it was like, so I'm now a surfer, <laughs> looking for the surf, <laughs> going out to Montauk on the weekend, hoping, or tomorrow for the day and hoping to catch a wave. We'll see. Um, that's a good place to do it. Yes. Wow. Look beautiful. Wow. That's, that's very cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was, you know, so many tumbles where I thought this is it, you know, like, I don't know which way up is. Yeah. And I feel like this has been a time of, about that. All of, all of the last, feels like two years, uh, has just mm -hmm. been about accepting that I have zero control. Yeah, about surfing the waves that come. Yes. Surfing, surfing the waves that we get. Surfing you know? the wave that comes. Yeah, sometimes getting a wipeout and sometimes catching a wave. And, and yes, it's, that's what I mean. These moments... Mm. 
And they're so time limited. No matter what, and if everything were just going swimmingly, <laughs> are the clocks running down? The heartbeats are continuing and they're finite. The breaths are finite. We don't know how many there are. So we really need to understand that there's been plenty of times in history. One could almost argue that most times in history, prior to ours were rougher. There were a few glimmers, like we can imagine certain phases perhaps, but you know, most of history, people died really easily, like really easily, just an infection, an infection, a tooth infection, any kind of infection. Women died in childbirth. Mm. You know, it, it was rough. There were wars, there were incredible invasions, plagues. And if you go further back, big animals were trying to eat you as well. And so it, it was rough and people didn't live all that long. It was very rare to live, to be old, to be what we consider old, super rare. So how did those people manage, right? How did they, <laughs> they had to get up and live and love and have children that they cared for and work in the fields and whatever they did or make things they had to figure things out and we know from the body of literature left which we're so privileged to have from the point of time that we have it just how luckily many times in history people were in very deep contemplation about just the nature of things they understood many of those people understood the situation very clearly. The Buddha's first truth, the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, the truth of unsatisfactoriness, cannot have permanent happiness in a condition of impermanence. Just that alone, just understanding only that puts you way ahead. <laughs> and so then you, you do stop whining a lot and you do get into, okay, what might make me happy? I think I'll learn to surf, you know? <laughs> Aren't you a doctor? Are you a doctor? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, you're a doctor. You think I'd like to learn to surf. You know, so I mean that's so cool. Really, just to give all of us permission. These are your days. They're limited. They may be more limited than we would have assumed. They may be. And let's really go into them in expansion rather than contraction. You know. Like really use our time well and and not to make that a pressure, not to think, oh, I need to make do something profound today. No. <laughs> right. And the other thing I really feel more and more strongly in my own case is just a willingness to be authentic. Because I notice any little wiggle of compromise in that regard is rather costly. It's sort of like a pebble in my shoe. It's costly. So to really give ourselves permission to be, you know, as silly as you want or as deep as you want or to just say things in the way that you really want to say them as long as it's not hurting other people. I often say to people, people other people are not keeping score on you. You're the only one keeping the score. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... 
how it looks to other people shouldn't really be your worry. <laughs> I, I found myself getting a little fearful, <laughs> you know, like that there was probably things percolating that I'm not aware of. Mm -hmm. And I'm bringing this up because I'm very blessed with a new job that feels extremely aligned for me. I'm really happy about it. But there are times that, well, I'm in social work. And so there are times where I see some things I, that are very, um, I, I see people suffering or I see people in situations that are maybe even unsafe. And at those moments, I guess I wonder how to how you use this focus of attention. Excuse me, but I'm starting to get emotional. It's just that I see so much sometimes. Sure. And, you know, I think it just triggers stuff for me. And I'm wondering, you know, how do you shift your attention when you are experiencing, you know, maybe some deep feelings or, or you're seeing other things that other people are going through? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the thing is, given the kind of work you do, and you have described it, I think, once before, there's an inherent empathy quotient about it. You wouldn't choose that work if you didn't have enormous empathy. And then once you are in that work, your empathy can be quite a challenge because you're having to take on the suffering of another person. I've always loved the understanding of the word compassion in its Latin root means suffering with, mm -hmm. right? Suffering with. So when you're in a job where you're seeing a lot of suffering of, and especially of younger people, kids at risk, and of perhaps you're seeing situations that are horrifying in terms of what they're being exposed to, and what kind of abuses they might have experienced or and then are the knock-on effect of them becoming troublesome in society it, it's heartbreaking it's very heartbreaking i can only tell you that it, if in your job you're able to kind of keep it together while you're there and do your job well and be a source of light to your coworkers and to the kids if you're managing to do all that and you need to maybe go home and cry at night a bit, and you're managing to do all of that, um, then okay, fine. If you're finding, though, that you're losing the plot in yourself, that you're falling into depression and anxiety a lot, such that you can't quite overcome it, then back to the authenticity thing, you have to be honest about your limitations. That might mean you work part-time, that might mean you'd get a different job. Mm -hmm. um, no matter what you're training, you know, several people on this call, I won't name you all, but several people on this very call are in identical circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I think that anyone taking on that kind of work is a brave heart. It's like triage or something, you know, it's very unusual people who have that kind of metal to go in every day and deal with, you know, just the saddest and most unjust and 
conditions of tremendous suffering. And in many cases, it might look like there's no fix for it, that, mm -hmm. that there's just ruination in certain people's lives that's going to be very hard to turn that around. So all of that has an effect as well, that you feel like you're, you're doing this job and you're wondering, is this even going to be of help? So just be honest with how much you're able to do and do well. You can, you know, you want to be able to do whatever you do well and mm -hmm. stay, keep yourself floating above somehow, not detached from your feelings, but floating above that you've still got enough energy and buoyancy to keep doing it or else make some adjustments down to a level that you can handle, even if it means despite all this training and a degree and a, maybe a good paying job and benefits, if it's just going to turn you in on yourself, then what is any of that worth? What is it worth? What is, what is your degree and money and health benefits going to be worth if it's taking up your mental landscape in a depressing way or in a way that's filled with anxiety? And this, this applies to all of us in whatever we're doing. If it's just, again, this is not a dress rehearsal we're in. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> so to really, to really bring your joy mm. and your full heartedness and your full commitment as much as possible. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean that your job has to be birds and jasmine all day long. But that, you know, that, that there's, a, there's an, in, uh, an enthusiasm underneath, even on hard days, there's a feeling of, yes, I'm still, I'm in the, my right saddle, I'm on the right horse. Mm -hmm. Even though we're going over some bumps, but in general, you feel, yeah, this is, this is the one I'm supposed to be on. And if it's just not, then see if you can make a change. This has been In the Deep. You can find the entire list of In the Deep podcasts at katherineingram.com, where you can also book a private phone session and view upcoming events, such as our monthly Zoom sessions. I want to deeply thank our donors for your support and encourage our other regular listeners to consider making either a one-time or a recurring donation. We would also be grateful for a review on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you're listening. Till next time.